Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, does the new COVID-19 vaccination actually reduce the transmission of the coronavirus? Two of Canada's major cannabis producers are joining forces. What is the health of the Canadian cannabis industry? A Canadian is heading into space. Navdeep Baines, Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry, joins us and tells us more. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, I'm Alicia Thompson, Scott's daughter. Kurt was so perplexed that he didn't get a snow day today that he forgot to do his intro. Even though snow days are now a thing of the past in a COVID-19 world, it's hitting him hard. It's the Scott Thompson Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Thank you, girly. Can you get the doors? Did you like it? Did you have fun? you enjoy doing that? She can't get out of this room fast enough once uh, <laughs> that's finished. Doesn't seem to embrace it the way the boy does. I'm not sure why. Uh, and you know, Kurt is, is uh, she mentioned, uh, Alicia mentioned, uh, took, uh, I, I actually, I forgot to write him one last night. That's why he didn't do it. It's my, my fault, all my fault. And I thought initially that my wife was going to do it. And then clearly at the last minute, they've, um, they've passed it off. So, uh, they made some sort of deal and, uh, Alicia got to do it as opposed to, uh, mom today. Not sure what happened. As long as she's done, that's all I care about. It is the Scott Thompson home show. Willers can back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Lots of ways to do that. You'll find the written edition of the podcast on the website. You can send us a note there, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, uh, let's move on uh, from where we are on, on this day, 2,432 new cases uh, in Ontario. That includes 142 in Hamilton, 104 in Halton. But obviously, Toronto and Peel continue to be the hot spots, uh, coming in at 737 and 434 uh, for them, respectively, as far as new numbers are concerned. This as uh, vaccinations slowly start to trickle in, but uh, we're, we're, we're certainly hearing the warnings. Uh, this is going to be a long process, and we have to adhere to uh, the protocol, especially going into the holidays, where we know, uh, unfortunately, people were, will perhaps skirt the protocol and, and get together and and, and what that means is in January, we could have ourselves, uh, we could find ourselves in a very uh, precarious situation as um, all of those cases, I guess, come home to roost. Uh, to talk more about all of this and in, in, in the vaccine itself, whether it can reduce the transmission of uh, the actual uh, COVID-19 virus and what are uh, what is on the horizon as far as new vaccines. Let's bring in Dr. Don uh, Bodish, immunologist and professor in the Department of Pathology and Molecular Medicine at McMaster University and is with us now. Uh, thank you so much for the time, doctor. Hope you're doing well. Very well. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to play this quick report first from Ken Mann talking about specifically the situation in Hamilton. Let's uh, give this a listen. 
Paul Johnson, the director of the city's emergency operations center, says there will be small numbers to begin with for the city's long-term care workers. He's predicting next week, as long as things go well with pilot sites in Toronto and Ottawa. Medical Officer of Health Dr. Elizabeth Richardson agrees. We have a great uh, group of people from across public health, the hospitals, primary care, um, who are all working together with long-term care homes, retirement homes, to, to get as ready as we can. It is a very dynamic situation. Dr. Richardson and predicts it will be late next year before the general public has access to the vaccine. Ken Mann, 900 CHML News. Again, let's bring in Dr. Don Bodish from McMaster. Uh, doctor, your thoughts on where we are today, and uh, it sounds like uh, vaccination will start to trickle into the Hamilton area. It's wonderful news. I mean, I think we were all holding our breath because there were a lot of gambles with designing this vaccine. We really didn't know what sort of immune response we needed to protect ourselves. We didn't know uh, if the the best guesses of all the, the companies that made the vaccines would pan out, and it looks like they have. And so now we're in this wonderful situation where Canada uh, made sort of deals with seven of the major max- vaccine manufacturers. And so the first two, the Pfizer and the Moderna, to, to uh, sort of hit the ground running uh, were ones we had deals with, and we've been able to implement getting those vaccines to Canada fairly quickly. So all in all, it is a, it's been a success story with regard to how the vaccine's uh, rolling out. How concerned are you about the timeline, meaning the majority of Canadians will be vaccinated by late fall? Well, you know, to be honest, that's it's a moving target. I think, you know, yeah. one of the things that the uh, Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine did that was a huge gamble is generally they don't start manufacturing a vaccine until after the phase three clinical testing, after the money's changed hands, mm. after all the paperwork's been done. But they actually started manufacturing these vaccines as they were the trials in the hopes that they would they would be proven to work and then they'd be able to distribute them. So I think everyone was surprised at just how quickly that distribution happened. Now, of course, there's a challenge. The first one that we're going to be getting in Canada, the Pfizer vaccine, has to be kept really, really cold. And so that really does limit who and where they can get it. It's not something you'll ever get in your family pharmacist or it's not something you'll be able to walk into a walk-in clinic or get it or anything like that. And so that's why we really have to focus on on, uh, long-term care workers, people who are in vulnerable situations. But as uh, the other vaccines, if they end up being as promising as this one move out, then we'll be able to see a a wider distribution. So I think it's important to be conservative. I don't want to get people's hopes up. I don't want people to stop masking and social distancing and all the things we have to do. But it could well end up being before uh, the federal government's estimate of September 2021. We have a sufficient amount of the population vaccinated. One of the other surprises after all of this, over and above the speed of all of this and, and the way uh, all of these uh, various organizations were moving together to expedite all of this, um, it, it was the high uh, the high effic- uh, efficacy rate of this vaccine. Mm-hmm. Many were hoping for 60, 70, and, and this is, you know, 95% for both the Moderna and and uh, Pfizer vaccine. Now we're and, and obviously with one of the questions, one of the questions with this vaccine is how long does it last? What is the correlation between this having such a uh, a great efficacy rate, being such a great vaccine, and figuring out how long it will last? What's the relation there? Yeah. So what this these vaccines do is they produce a lot of antibodies in us, and that was unclear. And it's it's also still not known just how many antibodies we need to protect ourselves from the virus. 
So one of the things that will be interesting as this vaccine rolls out is people who are, say, frail, living in long-term care homes, the oldest old who were not in those trials, will they be able to generate those same really robust antibody response? Will they have enough antibodies in their blood to really fight the virus? And even if not, there's the belief that having some antibodies can make the infection a little bit better. So uh, in uh, some of the trials, what we saw is that people were less likely to be admitted to the hospital, less fewer cases of truly severe COVID, even if they did get the infection. So this is all uh, very promising. But of course, when we move into the real world population where we have people who are living in long term care homes or who have or immunocompromised, that uh, beautiful 95 percent number we're all so excited about might fall a little bit. Still, this is really good. So the question is, how long will these antibodies last? And it's, this is truly unclear. It's some vaccines were protected for life. Your measles vaccines, you die with antibodies in, the, in your blood high mm. enough to protect you from the vaccine, despite only being vaccinated as a child. And other ones like influenza, they tend to, or even tetanus, which is why we go and get a tetanus booster, are ones that sort of fade with time. So unfortunately, only time will tell whether we end up needing booster shots for this. But certainly the levels of antibodies we're seeing are promising that we'll have a good at least a year and maybe maybe much, much longer of protection. Is this the downside of a strong vaccine in the sense that it doesn't give your body the chance to um, uh, to build those antibodies, for, for lack of a better phrase? Could we see later vaccines being uh, perhaps have, have a lower number there for that purpose? Mm. It's interesting because in general... Uh, we need a push to get these really, really high antibody levels. So we're already seeing for people who've naturally been infected with a virus, we do see that those antibodies uh, uh, disappear. And in fact, we just had some people in the lab the other week who'd recovered from fairly mild cases of the, of the virus. And I was amazed to see that they, they had barely any antibodies. So there's a real question as to whether they would be protected from a subsequent infection. On the other hand, the people who are getting these vaccines are having very, very strong immune responses. And uh, one of the things that uh, people maybe aren't aware of, especially when it comes to respiratory viruses, is that you need to have the right kind of immune response. Some people who have really strong immune responses are the ones who end up dying because they're the ones whose immune systems basically attack them or help their lungs fill up with liquid. So what we really need is a balance. And vaccines provide us that healthy, robust, antibody-generating immune response without having those dangerous immune responses that can actually kill us in the context of a real infection. So I think what we uh, will be looking at, certainly, is uh, how long these antibodies last, if they actually help get rid of every last virus in your body, or whether you could still be a carrier to someone else. And uh, we'll be watching very closely about which populations end up being protected directly because they were vaccinated or indirectly, like people in long-term care who might not be vaccinated themselves, but maybe their care workers or their visitors are. So do we know yet if this vaccine actually reduces transmission? I mean, obviously, if you don't have it, you're not going to transmit it mm-hmm. or transmit yeah, it. Yeah, so this is a But with, as- with so many asymptomatic people, I mean, what what, what happens here? One of the reasons this virus has been so diabolical is the fact that it has a long lag between when you get infected and when you show symptoms, meaning that you're walking around in the community spreading virus and not knowing it, and the high degree of asymptomatic infections, especially in younger people who might still be going to school, might be going to work, might be spreading the vaccine. 
or the disease rather. So with the vaccine, the trials were not uh, designed necessarily to count if it reduced the amount of virus that you might carry around with you, but based on the very strong immune responses, even if we don't get to what we call sterilizing immunity, which means there's not a single virus that can be detected in a vaccinated person's body, we will be getting to probably pretty low levels. And so that'll reduce the amount of virus that you're able to shed and then the number of people you're able to infect. The data isn't quite there yet, but if you ask me to bet, I would say we're going to see reduced transmission as a result of vaccination. Mm. Uh, the, the next one to be approved will be the Moderna vaccine. There's chatter that that could even come before uh, the new year. Obviously, uh, less a logistical nightmare for this because it doesn't have to be stored at such a cold temperature. As a result of that, will the Moderna vaccine be more successful just simply because it can be used in, in, in a more diverse situation? I would guess so. I mean, the logistical challenges of getting something that has to be kept at minus 70 degrees are enormous. I wish I could show you how big and bulky a minus 70 degree freezer is. You can't plug it into a normal power source and yeah. special power. If you were to come to the lab, you'd be You'd, you'd, your eyes would bulge at the sight of one of these things. So obviously that means people have to go to where the freezer is as opposed to the vaccine going where the people are. And this is not very hopeful for our northern communities, for more remote communities, for people who aren't mobile, like long-term care residents. And so certainly I think the belief is that we need to get people vaccinated ASAP and why not use the Pfizer vaccine to get started, to get healthcare workers where they can get the vaccine in a hospital, to get people who can go to the vaccine. But the Moderna, I would guess, is probably going to take over as the lead candidate after after this initial burst just for those reasons. That way yeah. you can go to wherever you want to get vaccinated as opposed to having to go to one of these centers. So here we are, uh, cases are skyrocketing, hospitals in Ontario have been asked to prepare for uh, surge capacity and such, Mm -hmm. Uh, holidays are coming and we all know the the challenges that that presents and such, yet we have this vaccine on the other side of all of this. Uh, What message do you have for those that are are listening and, and trying to interpret all this? I would say don't stop doing the right things yet. I was talking to my respirologist colleague this morning and and they are so tired and so worried about a surge over the Christmas holidays. You need to stay apart. You need to stay masked. You need to follow all those public health device, uh, advice until we have a broad vaccination scope. Do not let your guard down now because our health care system is creaking and at the strain. And I just I'm worried that it's going to break if we have a lot of social gatherings uh, over the holidays. Um, and I'm, I'm worried about the increased number of cases that we're seeing in schools. And does that actually show that rates are, are, are sort of creeping up in our, our broader communities? So please be careful. Do all the things you've been told to do. And it's just a little while longer, a few more months until we can get some aspects of our life back. Dr. Don Bodish has been with us, immunologist and professor in the Department of Pathology and Molecular Medicine at McMaster University. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Stay well. Thank you. Take care. All right, let's move on. In light of continued efforts to keep their doors open amid COVID-19 restrictions, uh, Argyle Street Grill has installed a new technology at the entrance to audibly welcome guests, instantly take their temperature and monitor if patrons are wearing a mask and confirming to Ontario public health guidelines. The restaurant has been testing the unit. Now we'll go live with it today. Uh, The standalone touchless uh, monitor is called Janus, created by Brantford-based company Solutions in Motion, and it's 
talk to us today is Vince Polinato, uh, president at Solutions in Motion, and is with us now. Vince, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, thank you. This is, uh, uh, I think, another example of how companies have have really had to pivot in this uh, uh, in this COVID nineteen pandemic. What were you doing uh, prior to all of the pandemic, and and how has that changed uh, the way you're doing business? Yeah, so uh, you know, it kind of fit our lineup. You know, we established uh, solutions into motion in two thousand four as a conceptual. You know, I came out of a twenty five year wireless background and. Um, the objective was to take big business technology and, and make that available to everyday businesses. And, and our start was a product called Trackem, um, which we kicked off in 2004. And we tried to make uh, GPS services for businesses, accommodate small business, make it affordable, um, and, and make that technology simple to use and bring that down to a, a sort of plug-and-play format. So that was where we kicked off. Last year, we kicked off a... Uh, an, an alternative uh, consumer-based uh, GPS tracking solution uh, to help people protect their assets and toys and family members and senior drivers and younger drivers um, as a great safety and security solution because now it's affordable, simple to use, right on your handset, uh, notifications and all that kind of stuff. So when this came along and you know we were looking for solutions for our own office and things like that, it was an opportunity to say, you know, this is right up our alley. Um, this is something that um, it needs to be extended to small businesses and everybody out there. And uh, so we've been sort of working away for three months at developing uh, sort of a plug and play version of artificial intelligence to work for everyday business, such as a restaurant uh, here today. How long into this pandemic was it before you realized, hey, we can do something here. We can help. Um, you know, I think a lot of us in that sort of um, tech business and stuff, we're, we're looking at various alternatives and all kinds of things to, to, to try to qualify, you know, what the new normal is going to look like and, and how it's going to look. Uh, it, we've, you know, we sort of had this thing on development table since probably June is when we sort of arrived with our first product and started to develop it and, uh, and just do some surveying and qualify from our, our sort of clients that are out there as to how it would work within their businesses and stuff like that. So we've been developing it since about July, and we've really just begun because, you know, the technology is such that we think it will be extended um, and it will become interactive while remaining touchless. So it can communicate, you know, somebody can communicate via their cell phone and interact with the database as well as the, the sort of Janus unit itself. Uh, sitting at the front of somebody's location. So tell us what, uh, if you walk into the Argyle Street Grill today or after today, what you will see, what will the experience be? Um, we hope it's absolutely uh, painless and invisible per se. Um, you know, there is a, uh, um, a screen, I guess, if you want to call it that, uh, an intelligent screen that's just standing um, at the doorway on a pedestal, such as, you know, what commonly now would be a, uh, dispenser of, of something. Um, and it's got a camera on it. And that camera, um, is backed with an, you know, intelligence that determines mask and that the mask is being worn appropriately. If that's not the case, um, an audible warning comes up and a red light comes up and just says, please wear a mask. At which point, um, the client can fix their mask or put their mask back on, step in front of, uh, the unit. And at which point then it'll take temperature 
um, as well. So it works within the Ontario guidelines or Canadian guidelines as to acceptable temperature, um, at which point then it'll sort of say, okay, mask, okay, temperature, and it welcomes them to the Argyle Street Grill is, is currently the way it, it's formatted to work. So it just does this very quick check. You know, it's, it's about a second that it takes. Um, you literally just walk by this device. It'll monitor your temperature and monitor your mask wearing. Advantages of this, reason for having one of these. Uh, number one would be obviously the, the you know, the safety uh, feeling between staff um, and people joining or patrons or any public space. Um, you know, it's almost like the emphasis has changed a little bit and it's, it's the small business owner's responsibility to um, maintain those standards and maintain those um, um, regulations and rules as they're sort of being developed as, as quickly as sort of every day occurs. So um, it's just one of those very quick, you know, tools that would allow us to, um, you know, pay attention to those rules and, and meet the guidelines, provide safety for staff and employees, you know. Um, certainly a, a temperature is not a be-all uh, stop point, but certainly something to say that everybody in here is healthy and I feel comfortable sitting down here taking my mask off and having some food, um, you know, and, and that's really what it is. It's, it's this great peace of mind tool, um, you know, that can be used for contract tracings and things like that should they ever want to incorporate that. What about the future of something like this or this technology even post-pandemic? Um, I, you know, it's, it's an interesting thought that, um, you know, where or how it's going to be. So, you know, in our job, Solutions in Motion's objective is to see to it that um, it becomes just another interactive tool. So it's, now having said that, I mean, it, it certainly is going to sort of replace um, key pass systems, um, things of that nature. So as an example to an entry system, you know, where we're buzzing in at a door or we're, you know, it has face cognitive facial recognition. Um, so it can be used as a punch clock, uh, as well as a quick health check at any sort of factory environment or any sort of uh, environment where hours are being monitored. It can be used at the front door to open and close doors, so it controls your access system as well through facial recognition. So if you pass all the tests and you're a key holder, it's going to unlock the door for you, or vice versa. If you don't pass the test, it's not going to let you into that building. So it'll act as that security guard as well. Um, so, the, you know, the... The, the mask piece is the one that's sort of the variable that depending on how things go, the rest of it, I think, has a real long lifespan associated with it in a sense that it's just this new modern uh, technology that, for example, could replace a punch clock or, um, you know, uh, of anything along those lines that suggestively says that, you know, we're monitoring people in and out of the location and we're providing access um, to various people at different levels. So it could be, for example, in a hallway on each floor with, you know, people who are gen generically walking around with RFID tags and things of that nature. Hopefully we're going to see um, smart technology replace the need for us to walk around with the thing around our neck. And all we're going to have to do is walk up to a door and it's going to go, hi, welcome, Vince, and let us in. Uh, is there too much concern or is there much concern among users, customers, what have you, that this is too much, that this is big brother? Or are we just at a point right now where that's just the way it is? I think it's pretty much just the way it is, you know. Um, you know, for us, it's a bit of that we're learning a lot um, in terms of sort of people's reaction, which is, you know, I would say overwhelmingly positive. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that, that the, the, the owner of the device would have the ability to do would be either, you know, 
uh, take images or not take images, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So they'll have to have policies and procedures in place, just like they would their security cameras or anything of that nature. Um, so I, I, you know, overwhelmingly positive response to the to the system. You know, and you know it it, it highlights itself here. This morning we put one down the road at. Uh, Searle Chevrolet, because we're here in Caledonia, who happened to be coming in here for takeout food um, and saw the one at Argyle Street Gill and, and ordered one. You know, this solves wow. my problem immediately. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. It's selling itself. Uh, Vince, it, it, Pollin- yeah. Vince Pollin Vince Yato has been with us, president at Solutions in Motion. Uh, lots of business taking up this technology, which allows them to scan the entranceway and instantly take temperatures and monitor par- uh, patrons wearing a mask. Incredible. Vince, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with all of this. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You can send us a note via the website where you will also find the commentary today. Send me a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, it's about the dog and the lights. Uh, we got such a lot of response yesterday. I decided to extend it one step further. And now I'm, 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 I'm it's quite selfish. I'm pooling you for, uh, some sort of solution. Feel free. Weigh in on that. We would love to hear from you. Uh, especially my wife who's losing Christmas lights on a daily basis here due to the dog. All right. Uh, <laughs> what do you do? Uh, Let's uh, move on to something different. A pair of Canadian cannabis companies say they're joining up to form the largest producer in the world based on sales. Uh, Afria Incorporated of Leamington, Ontario and Nanaimo, B.C.'s Tilray announced early Wednesday they are merging in an all-stock deal. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Mitchell Ozak, CEO of Quanta Consulting, and is with us now. Mitchell, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me. And by the way, my sympathies are with the dog. <laughs> I, I don't understand it, Mitchell. He's not eating the bulbs. He's not eating the decorations. He's not eating the tree. He's just eating the electrical lights. Well, let's let's handle that in another show and get back to this mega merger. <laughs> I will leave that with you, Mitchell, and you can report back. So, again, when this industry started way back when, or even before uh, the industry started, before legalization, many thought that uh, pot stocks were a gold mine. Uh, that, uh, that th- this is going to be the golden goose, so to speak. And with legalization, we haven't necessarily seen that happen, or have we? W- what are your thoughts on where this industry has gone? Uh, this industry is going nowhere but up. If you look at the real data around market sales, uh, number of licenses, uh, number of bankruptcies, all the core fundamentals of this industry are very positive. What is negative are the small number of publicly listed Canadian licensed producers that have not met unrealistic investor expectations. So without a doubt, it would be nice to see a lot of these companies trading at much higher stock prices. But the reality was the industry expectations back in 2017, 2018 were totally out of whack. So um, all in all, I think it's a good story. And this merger is a good example of what this industry needs to do to evolve and mature. So is, are the majority of these companies doing well? No, they are not. The vast majority of them are still losing money. Some are losing significant amounts of money every quarter, and I'm talking about in the tens of millions of dollars. The good news is that they're getting their financial house in order, their sales are going up, their product quality is going up, and they are quickly approaching profitability. But the vast majority of them are not quite there yet. 
And what do you attribute that to? This just being a new industry, uh, growing pains, trying to find your way, the template really isn't set yet. How, how do you explain that? Um, you're four for four, Scott. All of those <laughs> are absolutely true. Um, a couple of other things have hampered um, the drive towards profitability. One, and we know this in, in Ontario and in Quebec, which is 60% of the country, we've had a dearth of physical retail stores. And that has really hamstrung the industry because you can grow all the great uh, cannabis you want, but if you have very few places to sell it, and I'm only talking about 300 stores, legal stores in Ontario and Quebec, you're not going to have the national sales you need. That was one big issue. That problem is quickly going away because of a rampant store expansion uh, under the Ford government. Number two is that initial prices uh, were very high and initial quality was very low. What's happened over two years is that average prices, legal prices, have fallen close to black market levels and quality and the variety of products has gone up. So that delta, that difference between black market quality and black market price, their advantage has gone down, and the legal market is now capturing almost 50% of the total cannabis sales in Canada. So what is the advantage of the merger of these two companies? You said this was positive. Why is this the way to go? Okay, so it's a way to go uh, both from a Canadian industry perspective as well as from a a Tilray and Afria perspective. So I'll I'll start with Canada first. This is the beginning of a uh, rationalization in the Canadian industry that should have started to happen a year ago. And what I mean by rationalization is there's too much capacity, there's too much inventory, there are too many licensed producers to, to sustain a vibrant, profitable industry for everybody. So unfortunately, some of those licensed producers, whether they be large or small, will have to either merge into other companies, which is what this deal is about, or regretfully go out of business. That's necessary for a very successful Canadian industry to flourish and move on to the next generation. So it's, 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 it's difficult uh, and it's bad medicine, but we essentially have to take it in an aggregate level. For these two firms, um, this provides a lot of advantages, but you know, a couple I will say is that they have very complementary assets, both in Canada and in Europe and in the United States, which fit very well together and it creates what's called synergies or cross opportunities to sell and cut costs. The other thing um, which is advantageous is in this deal is that if once the U.S. legalizes, which it will, you know, in as early as two years, you know, Canadian companies that want to compete, whether defend their business in Canada or compete offensively in the United States, will need scale and size. And this deal at $4.8 billion gives these two firms sufficient scale to compete with the biggest American uh, growers. So are we just bound to see more mergers as time goes on? Yes. So um, I'm in the process of setting up a cannabis investment fund with a blue chip team of uh, industry experts. We've been studying the Canadian market for a year. We've seen many uh, licensed producers and extractors court each other and basically get to the church but um, at a certain point refuse to consummate the marriage for a variety of reasons. This looks like, because of its scale, because of its appeal, this looks like it's going to be the deal that's going to unlock many more mergers and acquisitions, both in Canada as well as the United States. 
So it's still, because of the infancy, infancy of this industry, it's still unclear what the successful template is going to look like. Or do you, do you think you see that? Um, again, absolutely unclear because it's a, it's a completely new industry with no playbook written anywhere. If you look at this deal from a typical M&A transaction, and if you look at the research out of places like Harvard Business School, 70 to 80% of all mergers and acquisitions fail to create and build shareholder value. So if you just look at any industry, the chances are 70-80% that this deal will fail. Having said all of that, there is some strong incentives for the management on both sides to make this work. Their cost uh, reduction targets are aggressive, but I think they're attainable considering a lot of the excess capacity and um, cost savings that these companies have available. So I'm cautiously optimistic this is going to be a net positive deal for both these companies as well as the industry. But as you've alluded to, this is a very difficult thing to pull off. The, uh, the timing is very aggressive. And as I just mentioned, the cost savings target, which is in excess of $100 million, is a tough thing to achieve, even in stable industries where you have a clear playbook. Where is Canada in this industry compared to the rest of the world? Okay, so Canada two years ago were the um, absolute leaders in the industry. We were the first G- G20 country to launch. We had a, a coast-to-coast national framework, and we were well ahead of our American brothers and sisters. We have since lost that lead for a variety of reasons, some of, the, some of which are many of our largest licensed producers have underperformed. We know that, you know, through your show and other shows, we know they've overbuilt greenhouse greenhouse capacity. We know their cost structures were too high. We know their product quality was insufficient. So we have dropped the ball. Canadian companies have absolutely dropped the ball. At the same time, a lot of American firms have got their game a lot faster. And some very large U.S. companies have emerged out of places like Florida and California and Illinois and places like that. And they're giving us a run for the money. The reality is we're a country of 35 million people. Hmm. Our market is roughly the size of California right now, and the U.S. is, is roughly 10, 10 times the size of us on a cannabis consumption perspective. So there's no reason to believe that we won't be major players on the cannabis stage, but the reality is we won't be the leader. We just don't have the size and scale for that. Mitchell Ozak has been with us, CEO of Quanta Consulting, talking about two of Canada's major cannabis companies coming together uh, to form the largest producer in the world based on sales. Mitchell, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Happy holidays. We've talked about this many times on this show, how life will will change post-COVID-19, how some of the protocol that has been put in place will keep going, including perhaps working from home. While there are many Canadians who are eagerly anticipating returning to work, returning to the office, there are studies that suggest that nearly as many that who now prefer working remotely or in non-traditional hours is increasing. According to a study by uh, an employment services provider, ADP Canada, 45% of working Canadians would prefer working remotely at least for three days a week, and more than a quarter would prefer, uh, prefer to work hours other than the traditional nine to five. Uh, Another agency, Robert Half Canada, says 48% of Canadian employers do not intend to continue their flexible work policies once the pandemic is over. Uh, we're heading into a new world. And you know, just as it changed quite abruptly as we headed into this pandemic, 
it could change just as abruptly as soon as the vaccination is available and we are out of it. Let's bring in Rocco Rossi, president of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. He is with us now. Rocco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, doing the best under the difficult circumstances, Scott. Hope the same for you and yours. I hear you. Uh, so, again, we've talked many times on, on how life will change after this pandemic. Are, are we expecting just as big a paradigm shift after this is over as we did when we got into this? I, I, I don't think you'll see a full snapback um, because there are many employers uh, and many employees who've seen incredible benefits, but uh, it's by no means available to all. I mean, first of all, there are many jobs that can't be done uh, remotely, and so that's not going to uh, change going forward. It'd be, be great to be able to swing a hammer or, uh, you know, change plumbing uh, via computer, but that, that's, that's not there just, uh, just yet. Um, similarly, I think the notion that um, you get everybody to go back um, to work would, wouldn't make sense for business because one of the things that it's allowing for in that flexible, uh, more flexible work is an ability to expand uh, what your talent pool is, both geographically and from the standpoint of having great work, uh, greater work flexibility is also a huge thing when it comes to uh, particularly uh, women and particularly when uh, they want to have children or come back uh, to work and having that additional pool of workers um, to use is, is something that could be leveraged to great advantage for the economy and for businesses. Is this about attitudes changing or in the end will this all uh, be all about cost effectiveness, be all about money? Whatever is, you know, whatever whatever works best on the balance sheet is what we'll see for business. I think the two are interrelated, right? Because obviously if something makes no sense at all from a dollars and cents standpoint, that's going to feed an attitude that says, uh-uh, ain't going to happen, uh, or at least not in my company. So if you want to work for me, these are the rules. Um, but I think that would be short-sighted. And one of the things that is enabling it, obviously, is that technology has advanced in a way uh, that we've not seen before when people have talked about, well, sure, I can work from, from home. Broadband and the tools that are available today allow for it. Not all of the time and not in all circumstances, and it certainly underscores um, an advocacy campaign that we in the chamber, you know, together with our partners, Keenan and his team at the, at the Hamilton Chamber have been pushing for so long and will continue, is the importance of having broadband everywhere in the province, because mm. if you're going to compete with the new paradigms, you have to have those tools. You can't get that effective work from home on dial-up. I'm sorry. It's just not going to, not going to happen. Oh, you know, certainly in southern Ontario, the greater Hamilton-Toronto area, uh, congestion, traffic, an issue. Anybody that has to drive from point A to point B uh, knows how that, that journey is taking longer and longer uh, as time goes by, excluding the pandemic, of course. Do you think this will become a scenario where employees will say, you know what, I just don't want to do that anymore? 
Well, there's definitely that if, they, if they're given the chance. And again, back to this issue of expanding your potential uh, labor pool, uh, you know, folks like OpenText have said, well, actually, I can now recruit from around the world or short of going from around the world to be able to go just a little bit further also means that housing for your employees yeah. is going to be a lot more affordable. That congestion, that, that loss of productivity through commuting is going to get better. So even from a dollars and cents standpoint, it starts to have potential advantages. And again, I don't see, I don't see it uh, being all or nothing either way. What we're going to see is evolution and those who've gotten advantages during this time, because this has been, in a sense, a forced experiment. Right before, people were very hesitant because, oh, I don't think I'm going to get anywhere near the productivity that I had of people being here. And you know, there are are, are people who absolutely have to see, you know, and oversee all of their employees all of the time. But but we're evolving in many circumstances, and people have seen through this crisis, an incredible amount of work can still get done, is being done. Uh, and so, how do we how do we mix and match the best of both opportunities? And there are also employees who, you know, and I, encount, I count myself among them, I love being around people. That's where I get my energy. That's where I get a lot of those impromptu discussions and ideas and creativity that, quite frankly, Zoom doesn't duplicate for me in full measure. So I'm looking forward to, uh, uh, to going back, and I know that lots of others are as well. How do you think we're going to look back at this, uh, say, a year from now? It's interesting. What, what I'm hearing from more and more people is, and you know, once you get past the anguish and, and the tragedy, and there's been plenty of that, is that this has accelerated many things that were already happening. You know, I think about online purchasing and many businesses who said, you know, I've put my three-year e-commerce plan into three weeks, into three months. And that's not going to go all the way back. My parents are now in their 80s. They ordered online for the very first time in their lives, and they actually quite liked it. Uh, now, they're not going to do everything online when, it's, uh, when everything opens up again, but they're not going to go back to 100% the other way as well. So what we've had is a forced acceleration on a number of dimensions. And in order for us to compete more effectively globally going forward, we need to take the best of those lessons. We need to take it from training and retraining. We need to take it from e-commerce opportunities. We need to take it from flexible work opportunities. We need to take it from virtual healthcare, which has exploded during this period. We just issued a report on, uh, on that at the OCC. And again, these are not all things for all people, but they are tremendous tools that we've now, because of this forced experimentation, know what's working and can incorporate that going forward. Do you think this will be a gradual thing, or do you think there'll be a quick shift once this is obvious it's over? Um, look, confidence is a, is a huge thing. If I knew, you know, if we all knew the exact date where everyone will have had 
vaccines in their arms, and if we further learn that those vaccines give us, you know, two, three, four years of um, of immunity, then that's going to allow things to move more quickly. We're not, we don't know exactly uh, when that moment's going to come, and we don't know even with this incredible 95% effectiveness that they're talking about with uh, Pfizer and uh, and Moderna, among other potential candidates, um, because they simply haven't had the time to see. We all we only know that it offers four to five months immunity because that's been the period that the, that uh, that we've had to be able to test. So lots of things still to learn. I think it'll be evolution, not revolution. But we've had an incredible acceleration. And we ain't going back 100% either. Hmm. Rocco Rossi's been with us, president of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, talking about life and what it will be like in a post-COVID-19 world. Rocco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Likewise, stay positive and test negative, my friend. There you go. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, another uh, announcement made in regard to space. There seems to be a few of them lately. Uh, and in this one involving, uh, obviously, lots of chatter about heading back to space or back to the moon and such, uh, a Canadian will now be a part of all of that. Let's bring in Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy, York University. He is with us now. Paul, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing very well indeed, Scott. Thanks for the time. Every time I see you on TV, I know that there's something exciting happening in space. And and today there's a couple of things. But uh, talk about the Canadian involved in, or there will be a Canadian involved in uh, our journey back to the moon. This is a great story from a Canadian perspective. I mean, we know full well that over the last 30 to 40 years, Canada and NASA in particular have played uh, together on the International Space Station with the Space Shuttle, the Canada Armada been a very close relationship. We've seen lots of Canadian astronauts in orbit doing just wonderful things. And now we have the opportunity for a Canadian to be a part of the Artemis program. The return to the moon, and not just a return to the moon, uh, but perhaps you know, hanging out on Lunar Gateway, and the door is not closed, according to the uh, Canadian Space Agency, for a Canadian on the surface of the moon. This is a really terrific development. So this is about first just orbiting the moon again, is that correct? That's right. The Artemis program uh, is is expected to play out in three phases. Artemis one is proof of concept, the hardware, the space launch system, which hasn't flown yet from NASA and its Orion spacecraft, going out to the moon, completely uncrewed, doing all it needs to do to show that it is safe to use this hardware, including splashdown. That's Artemis one. We're expecting that probably in the 2022 era. 2023, we see that same uh, technological architecture fly to the moon now with four astronauts on board. And at the moment, it looks as if one of those astronauts will be a Canadian. They're not staying. They're sort of looping the moon and coming back again. Proof of concept. They may orbit the moon. I mean, you know, the exact flight um, uh, choreography hasn't been mapped out yet. So they might be in lunar orbit for a week, maybe even two. Uh, but then they're coming back. And any then, idea uh, when we'll oh, any idea no. when we'll see an actual landing again? Well, I was just about to say Artemis three is onto the surface in twenty twenty four if the mm. current timetable holds up. 
you and I have both spoken long enough about these sorts of things. I wouldn't want to put too much money on this timetable, but it is imminent. We're talking about within the next five years, if NASA proceeds without hiccups, having people on the surface of the moon. And that's pretty fast and that's pretty exciting. And uh, to change gears here, China already uh, back up there and collecting samples. What can you tell us about that mission? Yeah, in fact, the Shang-E 5 should be touching down today or tomorrow with maybe a kilogram or two of lunar soil. Uh, the Chinese space program has certainly gone ahead very systematically, very rhythmically over the last 10 years. And the most complex of their missions to date, the sample return mission, which we're in the midst of at the moment, they've got a, a lander and a rover on the surface of the moon. In fact, they've got two landers and rovers on the surface of the moon at this moment in time. A couple of satellites in orbit and a sample return coming today. Very few details about what their human program is to the moon, but you've got to infer from all of the buildup in both Earth orbit and the activity on the moon that they've got their sights squarely on the moon as far as a human landing and potentially a human settlement is concerned. So do we know what their goals are, what their objective is, or is that all secret? It's speculation. I mean, yeah. as, as I say, I, I, I think you don't go to all of the effort, the systematic effort that they have engaged in, in going to the moon, and they've done it very well, they've done it very successfully. You don't do that, in my opinion, without the end goal being humans on the moon. Now, as far as the Canadian back in space, would there be a short list of candidates? Does that candidate know who they are already? How would that process work? Well, the short list is four, because we have four active Canadians. Uh, Dave Chenjuk has already flown. Jeremy Hansen is coming up. Uh, we've got, uh, oh, uh, Sibley. Oh, I've forgotten her name. Isn't that terrible? At any rate, the latest two astronauts uh, of the Canadian, Pro Kutrick is the other one, geez. They graduated in uh, January of this year, so they are, quote, on the flight roster. But you'd have to think that Jeremy Hansen would have the inside track because he's yet to fly, and he is the next most senior after Dave Saint-Jacques. So it's one of those four, <laughs> is all I can tell you at the moment. So another story that was uh, out is uh, in regard to two planets that are closer than they've ever been in an awfully long time, and this will create a bit of a spectacle. Oh, yeah, that's Monday. That's the great conjunction, absolutely. Uh, at, at this point in time, you know, it's the closest these two planets have been for 397 years. So, start, please don't miss it. I mean, it's a long time before it happens again. Uh, but uh, from our perspective here on Earth, Jupiter and Saturn are going to be within 0.1 degree of each other. So that's about a fifth the diameter of the moon on Monday. But it's beautifully clear today. People should go out tonight find Jupiter and Saturn over there on the southwest horizon at sunset, grab a pair of binoculars, and they will see these two planets getting quite close now. And if we've got clear skies over the next couple of days, they'll literally see those that gap shrink. It, it really is you know, gravitational choreography in action. The solar system is a moving entity. And watching these two planets close in on each other for the closest approach on Monday is really something. But they're so, not really close. You know, they're still 500 million kilometers apart. It's just from our perspective, they look close. So uh, from our perspective, will it look like one is behind the other at one point? That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, that, the, the technical term we're all using, they're going to kiss. I mean, they're, they're that close, mm -hmm. so to speak. Their, their light auras will merge. I mean, you'll still be able to separate them with a pair of binoculars. no question about that. But they will be that close that to the quick glance, it looks like one object in the night sky. 
All right, lots of news going on in space, which is always great to uh, see. Professor of Astronomy Paul Delaney is with us from York University. Paul, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure, mate. Take care. To talk more about all of this, we're pleased to have Navdeep Baines with us, Minister of Innovation, Science, and Industry, and is on the line now. Navdeep, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, John. I'm doing very well, and thanks very much for having me on. I meant to say Scott, sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. So, you know, you know, Navdeep, it's interesting, like, in considering what we've all been going through in the last nine or ten months, it's kind of cool to hear news like this uh, after a while. Oh, I totally agree. I've got uh, two young girls, Nanki, who's uh, 13, and Kerpa, who's 10, and they were just happy that the headline of the news of the day when they were watching the National was not COVID, but it was about space. <laughs> and they were so inspired to hear about the astronauts and about deep space exploration. And it's not to say that COVID isn't important or that we're dealing with a pandemic, but it does make uh, uh, things a bit better for Canadians. It uplifts them. It provides hope, particularly to the younger generation. So how significant is it to have a Canadian on this mission? Oh, it's a big deal. It's a big deal for our space program as a space-faring nation. This truly is a point of pride. Uh, next to the Americans, we're the only country to send astronauts to deep space. Uh, and uh, we'll have not one, but two opportunities to do that. And we have four amazing astronauts to choose from. We, in 2017, unveiled uh, two of the astronauts, uh, Jenny and Joshua, as part of the Canada Day celebrations in Ottawa. But we have savvy veterans like Jeremy and David, David actually, who came back from the International Space Station. And so uh, this says a lot about Canada. It says a lot about our proud history in space. Uh, I serve alongside Mark Garneau, uh, a cabin minister, our first Canadian astronaut to fly to space. Uh, and so this builds on a very proud legacy. And so this mission uh, is a, a, about going around the moon and, and, and setting up for an eventual moon landing, which we know is, will all, uh, is all a process on, on further space exploration and to Mars and such. So this mission is just orbiting around. What's the chance of us actually seeing a Canadian landing on the moon? So one step at a time. Uh, I think uh, the big achievement was to have a space strategy, which we put forward a year ago to be part of the Lunar Gateway Initiative, which enabled us to have access to the robotics, end-to-end -end control of the robotics program as part of the Canada Arm 3 Initiative, which also includes a lot of AI and, and some cutting-edge software. Uh, and then uh, the, these flights matter a great deal, and, and we're going to continue to work with the Americans and the NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine to talk about future missions and future possibilities. And what's really cool is that, as you said, this uh, initiative and this mission is a stepping stone for voyages possibly to the Mars. Uh, and so that's just so exciting uh, for deep space exploration and just enabling us to, to, to again, go beyond uh, what we've done in the past with the Apollo mission. Uh, and for Canada to be part of that, uh, again, speaks volumes to our long and proud history in space. Okay, Navdeep, I'm going to pay, uh, play devil's advocate out there because there are people asking these questions. Why go to the moon again? We've been there. We've done that. And could that all of that money uh, be spent uh, elsewhere, especially considering we're coming out of a pandemic? It's a great question, Scott, and I'm glad you asked it. And, you know, I think the, the fact that we're part of this mission uh, speaks to the investments we're making in science. This is a, a lab that's going to be flying around the moon. 
the gateway, uh, the lunar gateway. And so we're going to be doing some very important research. Uh, and we're going to be doing a lot of scientific work around health in particular and looking at issues around bone density and our cardiovascular system, all areas that we can learn from and apply here in our day-to-day lives. Uh, the, the technology that we're investing in robotics uh, is used in Canada already from our experiences in Canada Arm and Canada Arm 2, where different sectors, I was actually up north dealing with a mining company, and they were using the robotics that was inspired by the Canada Arm. Or when you go to a hospital and you look at the operating table and some of the precision robotics that's used for surgeries, again, it was inspired by very much the robotics work we did with the Canada Arm. So there's enormous applications and economic benefits. I indicated yesterday when we announced this initiative that it will contribute $135 million annually to our economy and support many in the space sector. And these are 1,300 minimum good quality, high paying jobs in the space sector for years to come as well. So the economic benefits are enormous. The scientific uh, research and work is incredible. But there's one aspect of it that you can't put a price on, and that is what I said earlier about how it inspires future generations. On that note, yeah. on that note, Nabdeep, you know, you, you brought up your, your two daughters and how they reacted to the story about space. I remember when uh, SpaceX took the four astronauts up to the International Space Station, and we, we we just happened to be watching walking by the screen when this was on, and my son stopped, and we both sat there mesmerized for a half an hour, and I said to him, "You're watching history here," and and you could see the excitement in their faces. What does this do for a younger generation? No, you nailed it. I think what you articulated in your own experience and when I talk about my daughters is a story that we hear across the country from different families that uh, emailed me yesterday after we announced, uh, which is this is about inspiring young people. And, you know, when we say the sky's not the limit, it really isn't the limit. And I know that's a pun that we use often that uh, uh, applies to space, but it speaks to encouraging young people to pursue a career in science and technology engineering and mathematics, all disciplines that have enormous benefits not only to their personal growth, but can solve a lot of the problems that we as a society face. If you look at this pandemic, let's talk about the current context. Uh, If you look at the vaccine, that's science. If you look at the ability for industry in Canada to quickly mobilize and and build personal protective equipment for frontline healthcare workers uh, so quickly, that's because we invested uh, in, in technology, in engineering. Uh, and so these are the byproducts of having, uh, you know, investing young people in their ideas and giving them hope and asking them to pursue a career in STEM, as I mentioned. And so there's so many possibilities, and it's really a, a powerful message we're sending to the younger generation. Navdeep Baines has been with us, Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry on the news. A Canadian will be part of the mission as NASA heads back to the moon. Navdeep, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much, Scott. All the best to you. A happy holidays. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.